This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. I want to welcome you back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. This week is Preakness Week, and of course, as it is every year recently, the topic of the Preakness can't come up without talking about Pimlico and what is going to happen to it, and as a result, what is going to happen with the Preakness. By all accounts, Old Hilltop requires some major renovations, both in terms of standard upkeep and in terms of putting it more on par with the type of sporting facilities to which the general public has become accustomed. Perhaps as a reflection of the condition of the facility, Pimlico is once again hosting a very shortened meet, only 12 race days this year. Or perhaps it's merely a reflection of the Stronach Group and their feelings about the two racing properties they control in Maryland. Laurel Park is, by all accounts, a more modern, welcoming facility to which increasing attention has been paid by the Stronach Group in hopes, it is reported, of ultimately landing a Breeders' Cup at that facility. Recently, of course, just to add some fuel to this smoldering fire, the Stronach Group announced that nearly 7,000 seats in the North Grandstand of Pimlico were not going to be available to the Preakness going public because of safety concerns. That is coming on the heels of the city of Baltimore suing to be granted ownership of both Pimlico and the Preakness. Baltimore, of course, being the city whose mayor recently resigned after being under investigation for some shady dealings regarding financial shenanigans associated with a children's book. I still have a hard time believing Dick and Jane have gone rogue on us. But anyway, with that as a background, and thanks to the intercession of podcast friend T.K. Kugler, I reached out to Cricket Goodall, Executive Director of the Maryland Horse Breeders Association and Executive Director of Maryland Million Limited, which annually produces what is now known as Jim McKay, Maryland Million Day, to talk about her Preakness memories and the Pimlico controversy. In one of our Season 3 episodes, Cricket is also going to talk to us about her role with the Maryland Horse Breeders, about Maryland racing in general, and about Jim McKay, Maryland Million Day. Speaking of the late, great Jim McKay, I'll introduce our second guest by remarking that for horse players and sporting fans of a certain age, you couldn't think of the Preakness or virtually any major sporting event without thinking of the name Jim McKay. His calm presence and soothing voice provided the backdrop and soundtrack for many memorable sporting events, and as some of us well know, one very famous and tragic event. Jim's daughter, Mary McManus-Guber, graciously joined us to talk about her dad and his special love for the Preakness, and indeed all of Maryland and Maryland racing. Naturally, Mary will also rejoin us when we talk about Jim McKay, Maryland Million Day in the fall. But for now, let's talk Preakness, starting with Cricket Goodall, Executive Director of the Maryland Horse Breeders Association and Maryland Million Limited. You know, there's been speculation about the future of the Preakness of Pimlico for a long time now. And now we've got a situation, I think, where the mayor of Baltimore is suing uh, to force the Stronach Group to keep the race at Pimlico or that the Preakness belongs to Pimlico. Um, does it, it, it's one of the pluses and minuses of, you know, it, it, does it make sense to keep it at Pimlico or is rehabbing Pimlico so far out of the question that the more modern Laurel facility makes more sense? And what would the impact of all that be? Well, 
I think that, um, again, you're looking at contraction in the industry. Not only have racetracks consolidated, but ownerships have consolidated. I mean, in the old days, there were multiple owners of tracks in Maryland. You know, we had track owners. I mean, when Merrill Maine started, we had Frank DeFrancis at Laurel and the mm. Cohens at Pimlico. And, you know, and, and at the time that, that the consolidation started, everybody – and I think all across the country when, when tracks started consolidating, you know, people thought that was a good thing because then you're going to be dealing with the smaller ownership group anyway. Um, so I think that in an ideal world and with all the money that you need, people would love to have Pimlico and the Preakness. You know, Pimlico fixed up, the Preakness stay, have Laurel be the home of the Maryland Million and the international race they're talking about bringing that back. Both okay. tracks have appealing, different appealing opportunities. And Maryland Million, actually Maryland Million, when it was designed, was going to go back and forth between the two tracks. And we did that for three or four years. And then it looked like Preakness had its own deal at Pimlico and Laurel needed a big event. So we have been at Laurel for, I don't know, since 90-something. But um, and also, the handle was a little better at Laurel because you can draw from the Washington market, the Northern Virginia market. So the per capita handle has always been a little better at Laurel. They, the Colts took everything. They took the name. They took the history. They took the statistics. Nobody remembers the Baltimore Colts anymore. But Pimlico, you know, it will stay. If the Preakness moves to Laurel, the history will change, but it will not be forgotten. And, and so that's one difference. But the problem, what, what's being debated right now, and, and the, you know, there's a lot of emotion involved on both sides and debate of how to read the laws. And, but the reality is, um, if there was enough money to do it, I think that you know everybody could agree and do it and fix Pimlico up the way it needs to be fixed up to have a significant boutique event around the Preakness every year. Um, find some other uses because you can't spend the kind of money that you're talking about or even half as much as they're talking. I mean, they're talking about a, a half a billion dollars a year nearly. You can't do that for a you know short meet. So you'd have to find other things that could take place at the site. And so they've like, their plans, but again, the numbers are just so significant that for a city that's under challenge, a state that, you know, again, is always needing money for education and all these other things, and then a horse industry with an owner who says, wait a minute, you know, I, I don't know if I can afford to run, keep two facilities, or three. They're talking about Bowie coming back as a as a training facility. So um, I don't know where that will land. I, again, we're in the midst of a lot of emotion and a lot of ideas. Um, I think that I'm sure I don't know all the ideas that everybody's come up with because I think there are a lot of people who have great ideas about how to handle the Pimlico situation and keep the track and develop part of it and do all that. But, you know, we're still in a in a stage where no one's um, – we're still – the industry and the and the city is still not right now it's probably the height of the political wrangling drama <laughs> yeah 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 it's hard to it's hard to predict what will be um happening by the time the preakness runs there this year but i think i 
I think it will be worked out in a way that's satisfactory. I don't know that it can be done the way the plans, the half a billion dollar plan wants it. I don't, I'm not sure that's, well, it isn't realistic. It's just not realistic for a lot of reasons. The money, but also the plan itself was, you know, changing the diameter, I mean, the size of the racetrack and just a lot of things that aren't going to work for, to keep it, to have a racetrack that would not only preserve the history, but also be appealing for people to actually come run their horses. So, um, there's a lot of moving parts at the moment. Well, uh, you know, you, you mentioned in one idea that caught my attention, and I would uh, say it's analogous to what's going on at Belmont, you know, the idea of making Pimlico a multi-use facility, and, and you know, you referenced that. At Belmont, you know, the Islanders are going to have a new NHL arena there, and I'm not saying that Pimlico can afford that type of, you know, size or, or, or expansion, but if there are ways to you know, conference center, hotel, event center on top of the racetrack facility. Because the other thing, let's be honest about racing, it's 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 almost a studio sport these days, except on those big days, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So do you need that massive grandstand more than one or two days a year? You know, uh, even, even at Belmont, I don't think you need it more than uh, – to, you know, a, a couple of days a year. I mean, I was there on one of their Super Saturdays last fall, and, uh, you know, the number of live attendees was that we were pretty spread out. Let's put it that way. You still, yeah. Yeah, I've been to Belmont when it's a big day, and you still rattle around in there. It's, yeah. It's, um, no, you're right. None of the tracks need to have that, the, the size grandstands they have, you know, based even for big days. They have to figure out a way to accommodate you know, for the tracks that have the Triple Crown races or great big events, they've got to figure out how to go from a track that where you may get a you know a few thousand people on a Saturday to fifty thousand people or above for a big race event. And there are ways to do it. I mean, the the tracks that have run the Breeders' Cup that aren't don't have huge facilities have figured out a way to do it. But that being said, then you do have to figure out with Pimlico or a track that has acreage that is um, unused is there are there other things to do with it in maryland there is a hospital next door to pimlico called sinai and they are very interested in expanding and putting an outpatient facility an additional and they they have bought they've bought part of one parking lot already so they're, they're very interested in being you know on one part of the site but they don't from what I understand, don't want the whole site. So then you figure out, yeah, what else can you do there that would be um, something going on for the rest of the year and appealing. Pimlico, just like a lot of racetracks, Churchill, and the neighborhood around it is needs help, mm-hmm. needs to be um, rehabbed and included. And so I think that, again, is is part of the conversation, but it's almost – you know, you've got to figure out what to do with the racetrack and the race, and also we got to figure out this neighborhood and how long is that going to take, and where's that money going to come from? Um, they're having that that same question because you know you read about Baltimore, the city needs a lot of things, and that's yeah. what part of the debate is. It needs a lot of things, and is four hundred plus four or five hundred million dollars, or even two hundred million dollars, is that the best use? of the money, you know, fixing Pimlico up. Um, So that's a debate that the city has to have and the state has to have, and then the Stronach Group has to weigh in. It's their property. Right, right, right. 
Yeah, possession is so, nine so tenths right of the law. Right now, we're sort yeah. of, you know, it's it's not a, it's a very contentious relationship, but it's one that has to work out between the city, the state, and the Strana Group in some form or fashion to get a resolution that is equitable and fair and good for everybody, for for the horse industry, for the city, for the state, and that's a that's the challenge, and it's not that different than, you know. Churchill, I think, went through it. You know, before they did the rehab there, mm-hmm. they were they were trying to figure out how to fit in in Louisville and make things work down there, and they've figured it out, and they're doing well. So maybe you know somebody steps back and looks at that. I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not in those kind of discussions, but it's a big problem that right now at this particular time the emotions have taken over, and mainly because the political it's the legislative session here. And so there's a lot for the next two weeks on the line. Um, Once the session ends, then there'll either be some resolution or it'll be kicked back to, you know, okay, parties, you're going to get shut in a room and you better figure this out, but it won't be quite so, uh, so charged with emotion as it is right now. So let's, let's pivot to something a little more (laughs) that's That's contentious. That's difficult. Uh, let's talk about Preakness memories, if you don't mind, Cricket. I, I know I have my own personal favorite Preakness of all time, uh, but what what are yours? The ones that you when you think about the Preakness, what are, what are your favorite Preaknesses that you've seen? Um, well, the first one I ever went to was Codex. And, oh, uh, controversial! Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very controversial. And I had I had not been to the Preakness before, and I was I'd been around the you know the racetrack sort of, but not to any kind of event like that. So I didn't I don't think I really realized how controversial it was until after the fact. But um, anyway, that was my introduction, and it again I was far enough removed that I had a good time, and I was um, young and enjoying life. But um, but then my favorite favorite is uh, Sunday Silence, yeah. and uh, yeah. 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 And yeah, that that I was I happened to be on the inside rail. Oh, right wow. on the rail. They used to let you stand on the turf course on the inside rail, and I, that was the most amazing race still that I've ever seen. I mean that that, and then well, the Fleet Alex was another one. That again, I watched that from sort of the turf course, and watching him almost go down was amazing too. So um, those are the ones that come to mind. That just you know you you. Thankfully, if you can watch the races in places where you don't get to usually watch them, it's it's an amazing experience. I've I've spent time up in the press box a little bit too, not so much on Preakness Day, but you know that's another view that the people don't get to see. So ha- I've always thought, how do we how do we show that off? And I know they're thinking of you know putting sky boxes and that sort of thing, but that the pre- the press box, at least at the tracks here, is one of the best views at the track and. Mm. It's a press box, and it's in these day, this day and age, there is no press in the press box. Not really used, right, right, right. Except for big days. But uh, you know, I try to over the years. I've tried to take people up there just to show them because it's you know just different. It's it's fun to stand right on you know the inside rail or the outside rail and feel the horses and hear the horses. You know, a real experience. I'm not a I'm not a huge better. I'm not really a better at all. So it's the experience that I love. Thanks, Cricket. We'll look forward to you joining us in this fall season three to talk more about Maryland racing and what is now known as Jim McKay Maryland Million Day. 
As I mentioned, Mary McManus-Guba graciously agreed to join me on the podcast to talk about her dad, the late, great Jim McKay. He was indeed the voice of so many memorable sporting events of my youth. His presence on Wild World of Sports lent excitement and credence to events that range from track and field to ski jumping and a host of sports and venues in between. But it was obvious, even to callow youthful observers such as myself, that Preakness Day held a special place in Jim McKay's heart. With her great memory and great stories, Mary helped fill in some of the rich detail about her dad, Jim McKay. Mary, your dad was actually born Jim McManus, which is it's not a tough name like Duncliffe, for instance, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it was altered anyway. It, it, was that for TV purposes? Was that his choice? Was it kind of foisted it was, on it him? Was, uh, it was not his choice. It was CBS uh, when he came to work in television in the early 50s. They wanted to own a name. And so they came up with McKay as being as close as they could come to McManus. And that's what he took. He actually later was glad that he was Jim McKay as opposed to Jim McManus because it gave him a little more anonymity um, that, you know, he could be Jim McManus and people wouldn't equate the two. So uh, it was not his choice, but it worked out later on. Oh, that's interesting. That's fascinating. (laughs) <laughs> and we have on our passports, we had McManus, also known as McKay. So oh, wow. that we didn't, yeah, so we didn't run into any customs <laughs> problems. Well, especially you didn't want the customs officer saying, you're not Jim McManus, you're Jim McKay. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. So he, 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 he moved to Maryland. And how did he end up, you know, in, in broadcasting? Oh, that was a uh, very not the most straightforward thing he had been he by his own admission he was not particularly athletic uh, but he was good with drama and he was president of the drama club at Loyola College now Loyola University and uh, and then he went uh, you know obviously World War II and then later he went to work for the Sun Papers and uh, I think it was I hope this is right. WMAR was starting a television station in Baltimore, 1947, 48, somewhere in there. Okay. And they just literally came into the newsroom and said, uh, you and you are going to do the uh, broadcast. And Dad went into the editor's office and he said, what, what is this about? I, you know, I've never been on radio or television. He goes, yes, but you were the president of the drama club and that's close enough. <laughs> that's, and that is literally how it started. And I think one of his first broadcasts were, was a uh, horse race and H.L. Mencken said that he was terrible. <laughs> oh. So he said, "Well, maybe I was." <laughs> well, didn't H.L. Mencken say that about everybody, though? So just I think know. probably that's true. Yes, <laughs> I think he did say that about everybody. But uh, that is really how it started. It had nothing to do with him. Well, of course, television wasn't even really around, but it had nothing to do with him being interested in going into radio or any kind of thing like that. Uh, he was a newspaper man. That's what he was interested in. So he really literally fell into this. Well, I wonder, I mean, if, you know, he had what I would call a very kind of low-key factual mm. style. And, and I yeah. wonder how much of that was due to his, his newspaper background, right, that he wasn't raised to be, as opposed to much of the media these days where people are raised to be TV personalities. He was right. not raised to be a personality, right? Right. 
exactly right. He wasn't at all. And, you know, that wasn't his personality. He really was, by nature, kind of a shy man. He was certainly a humble man. And uh, he really strongly felt that he was there to cover the story, not to be the story. And uh, I think that well, he kind of let Howard Cosell be the story, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, because Cosell's style back then was uh, not atypical of what people thought of as uh, sports broadcasters, you know, as, as you said, kind of bombastic and out there and inserting themselves into the action. And dad really strongly believed as a newspaper man that he needed to tell the viewers the story. And uh, and they needed to learn about it from him, but that he didn't want to be in the middle of it. And I think today, um, especially with some of our sports people getting involved in the political end of things and making sort of statements on TV during football games and what have you, he wouldn't have liked that at all. He would have said, that's just not what this should be about. And um, that was certainly not anything that he would have done where he's still on television today. So you, you raised the name Mary uh, Howard Cosell. That begs the question, <laughs> right? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> you know the question. Right? I, I sort of do, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it like for your dad to work with Howard Cosell? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, as dad would say, Howard is Howard, you know. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, Dad respected him. He was certainly an intelligent man, and he certainly had a command of the English language. Uh, But their styles were so different, and their personalities were so different. Um, Would I say they were friends? Well, yeah, I mean, in the sense of that, you know, being colleagues through ABC Sports. But uh, had that not been their connection, I don't see how they would have been really any way simpatico at all. He... um, it was just a little too much for Dad. That's just not who he was. And uh, But he let Howard be Howard. I can give you an example of Howard. Howard was exactly in real life like he was on television. Okay. There was, there, yeah, okay. there was no difference. Yeah. And we were in uh, Munich at the uh, 72 Olympics. And my brother and I and some other people came walking into the hotel bar. And it must have been, you know, what was I, 19 at the time? And we came walking in, and it was about 2 a.m. And there's Howard sitting at the bar with Andy Williams. And with his hand on Andy Williams' shoulder in this loud Howard Cosell booming voice, he's going, Andy Williams, the singer, here in Munich, West Germany. You know, and we're all like, yep, that's Howard. (laughs) That's a great Howard Cosell impersonation. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but um, Howard had a lovely wife whose name was Emmy, who was always delightful. I was going, Howard, Howard. <laughs> but um, yeah, that uh, they were friendly rivals, shall we say? Okay, I think that's fair. It sounds like Emmy probably had to do a lot of sweeping up after Howard. I would imagine. Uh, uh, yes, Emmy did have to do a lot of sweeping up. <laughs> My mother didn't have to do any of that, but no, Emmy did. No, no, but you know, it's a sign of his confidence or that that you know he let howard be howard you know just get mm-hmm. out of the way and let him do his thing but not be affected by it himself i, I think that, that's actually right. a mark of a real professional i would say it is and also in fairness because i know that he would say this uh that he attributes a lot of that to my mom my mom was really his behind the scenes 
cheerleader and she really helped him have that confidence and that uh, belief in his approach was perfect for him and was making uh, the sports events and the people involved interesting and important. And he didn't have to yell about it and come up with big 15-letter words and all that stuff in order to make his point. So he would definitely credit her with a lot of that and his groundedness. You, 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 Mary, you mentioned the Munich Olympics, and I, and I did want to ask you about that. Uh, you know, one of the things, and I'm actually choking up a little bit just thinking about oh. it, because I, I remember watching it, you know. Oh, no. um, he was, you know, one of the things he was best known for was really his coverage that day. Mm-hmm. And and now now I found out you were you were there. What was it like for him? Did he talk about it afterwards? Did he? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. He definitely talked about it. Um, well, because we were there, uh, you know, we did not see the actual broadcast. Uh, and I, like you, uh, later when I did actually see the broadcast, which was probably a year later, we were up at the ABC Sports offices, and I don't know, for some reason, it came up and and Rune or somebody said, you never saw it. We said, no, we never saw it. So he played it. And I got very choked up uh, watching it. Being there, um, well, he wasn't there as the host. If you remember, Chris Schenkel was the host. That's right. Very and good, yeah. um, quite frankly, up until that point, I think people in who were into sports knew him, knew who he was. But uh, outside of that, I, he was not a household name, uh, and he would be the first to say that. But he, um, he was actually, it was his day off, and he was going to go for a swim in the pool and a sauna. And he had his bathing trunks on when, uh, I guess it was Rune, called him and said, you got to get down here. And uh, Rune knew that dad could handle this in part because of his newspaper background, but also because he knew that dad would add just the right touch, if you will, to this story and how it unfolded. And so dad was so stunned, as everybody was, because nothing like that had happened in our world before. And and at the Olympics, it's supposed to be this peaceful country coming together kind of thing. Um, he went down to the studio. He had literally gotten dressed for getting to take off his bathing trunks. And oh um, <laughs> he was in his sort of semi-wet bathing trunks all day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But um, he was in the studio all day. And I do know that um, the biggest thing that he had on his mind about this was that there was a, an American, and I have forgotten his name, I'm sorry to say, who was on the Israeli team. And his family was his parents in particular were in Shaker Heights, Ohio. And he knew that he had to tell these parents whether their son was alive or dead. And when, of course, the news came back that they had all been killed, he said that was who he was talking to when he made that announcement. They're all gone. He was he was trying to break this news to parents uh, that no parent ever wants to hear. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, um, it was, uh, it, it was an exhausting day, but at the same time for him, it catapulted him into a whole new arena as far as, um, being known and being thought of as way more than just another, uh, sports commentator. 
And um, Walter Cronkite, who had been a friend, actually did send him a telegram saying, you have, I'm trying to remember exactly the words, it was something like, you have outdone yourself, oh and my. oh, you've done our profession proud today. Um, and he did win an Emmy for news that year, yeah. as well as sports, and uh, received a lot of other awards, um, because his coverage was factual. Uh, straightforward but compassionate, and um, it 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 really vaulted him into a whole new area, and uh, the, so it it had a twofold effect um, yeah, for everybody, yeah. and uh, it was quite something to be there. It was. Uh, I'll bet it was. I, yeah, I, I it really. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of us who were watching that day would, you know, I, I think any one of us who were watching that day will think about the events of that day and and your dad right mm -hmm. kind of right alongside each other because he was oh, yeah. Yeah. very you know uh and, and, and over what it was like 14 16 hours that he was on the air i believe right correct straight yeah, yeah right i mean they would cut to peter jennings you know who was doing some of the stuff uh in the village and uh, things of that sort but basically yeah dad was on the air uh i think you're right about 14 or 16 hours straight until they the uh, you know the, the uh, helicopters were blown up at Furstenfeld Airport and and they were gone. Wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. I know. It's it's. I was standing outside. You have to understand, Bill. This there weren't wasn't security. There was nothing. I mean, there was a cyclone fence around the Olympic Village. That was it. And all you had to do was just say you were with a team. And you walked in. I mean, my brother and I walked in and out of there as freely as if we were going into a grocery store and coming out. So it was not surprising that this happened in that way because no one was expecting it. Right. But when they took off from the, in the helicopters from the Olympic Village, uh, I was standing right outside the gate that I had been allowed to walk in and out of. And I saw those helicopters go overhead and I could see the athletes and oh. the terrorists in the helicopters. I could see it. It was that close. Oh my. Um, wow. And it's, I get chills whenever I think about that. I mean, it was, we were all just like mouths hanging open because here we were watching this and utterly helpless. And uh, it was, it was an amazing thing to be a part of an amazing event in history to be a part of well like you said nothing nothing like that had ever happened you know no, before this was no. really an unprecedented event yeah yeah and that it happened in germany with, yes you know, right and you know we forget it was 1972 it wasn't all that Not long that long right after the end of world war ii so um you know that it was just uh and it was supposed to be the colors of the Olympics were all pastels, and it was supposed to be the the, the Olympics of real peace. Um, so it was just very, just an astonishing event in history. It really was. How did he, you know, because there was a lot of controversy at the time, Mary, about whether the Olympics should be canceled at that point, whether they should go right. on. How did he go on and go back to work after that? Was it, was, it just his yeah. professionalism kind of taking over? or I think so. Yeah. I think it was. And I think it was also not to let these um, crazy people, as, as we thought of them then, uh, to win. Um, yeah, there was a lot of controversy about it, but I think that he felt as a professional, um, that old newspaper reporter kicked in, he had to 
go forward and tell the facts. He had to let people know what was going on. And uh, so he did. But it was hard. He was a very sensitive, empathetic man. And it really it, it struck him very hard, that, that whole thing. It was very difficult, very difficult. I, I, I can only imagine. Uh, yeah. You, you know, you mentioned that his fame really kind of, you know, it had a dual edge to it, right? The event and his fame mm-hmm. really kind of catapulted after that. So now you are here, you are the 19 year old daughter of someone who has achieved <laughs> worldwide fame. Right? What was yeah, it like? It was still dad. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's good. Well, I can tell you, um, actually after those Olympics, I left early cause I had to go back to college and, uh, my brother had to go back to high school. So we flew back beforehand and mom and dad had decided sort of as a decompressing thing, they would take a nice little leisurely three week uh, tour through the French countryside. Hmm. It sounds like it was a real partnership there. Total. Yeah. Total. Absolutely. Rock solid partnership of just shy of 60 years. Um, I'm really, my brother and I were very, very blessed to have parents that operated like that, uh, as far back as we can remember. And dad, uh, totally would credit mom for his success. I mean, he didn't downplay the fact that he had the talent, but he knew that without mom being willing to be at home, uh, alone a lot, um, raising the kids, Mm, handling the house, managing the money, uh, it allowed him the freedom to go off and, as he would say, do his thing. Um, but because he knew that she was handling everything back home and she never got um, resentful or annoyed. I mean, she went a lot, too, but she knew that this was um, important to him and uh, he was good at it. And how could she best support that? And she had her own career. She was a syndicated television columnist. Um, oh, no, but, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she had. They had met on the Baltimore Sun. Okay, she was a newspaper right. reporter. She was actually the senior reporter. Okay. Um, <laughs> there we go. Good. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, she was. They were an absolute partnership, um, and it really um, set the bar high, shall we say, for my brother and I, as far as uh, marriage goes, to really see how that works and can work. So they're gone. We're back, and I'm at school, and I'm trying to register. And my mother was brilliant when it came to finances but for whatever reason she forgot to pay my tuition that year and they weren't going to let me register despite the fact they knew everything that had gone right, on. Right, right. and uh you know who paid my tuition frank gifford <laughs> oh no way oh my god well if they wow. said uh, i was talking to vicky who was a friend of mine and she said, what's wrong? And I told her, and, and Frank, I guess, was in the room, and, and he came on. He said, Mary, what's going on? I said, oh, Mom, forgot to pay my tuition, and they won't let me register. He goes, oh, for heaven's sake. He said, I'll pay it. Oh, my. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Mom paid him back. But, um, you know, I mean, that um, it was still Mom and Dad, just being Mom and Dad. It was uh, exciting, and it was certainly wonderful to have people uh, know him and acknowledge him and say they saw it and how it moved them. But we had been raised with very grounded ideas about this was all very fortunate. We were very blessed, but it wasn't about who we were. And um, so they were still mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, Mary, I remember, you know, watching Preaknesses, many Preaknesses, and and your your dad's love of how special Preakness Day was Mm. came across very 
directly in those 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 broadcasts. I remember him talking about it's it's time for Maryland, my Maryland, and he would get you know kind of well up. It seemed like right, <laughs> you know uh, mm-hmm. that stood out even um, from from many miles away. It really was a, a a very special day for him, wasn't it? It was very special um, because Maryland, Maryland, as far as he was concerned, was his home state. And he really wanted to showcase her, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so he's showcasing his beloved Maryland with his beloved sport of horse racing. And you put those two together and it was, uh, he said in one of his books, something to the effect of it was like having a great novel with wonderful chapters, with this great plot And he wanted to really let everybody in the country know that, yes, Kentucky, Derby, terrific. Belmont Stakes, New York, great. But Maryland, look at this. This is the middle jewel of the Triple Crown. Here, this you have to pay attention here. And uh, he just loved talking about Maryland. He loved the people in Maryland. He loved everybody at the track, from the lady who operated the elevator to the hot walkers to the jockeys. The owners, he was comfortable with everyone, and everyone, I think, was comfortable with him. I mean, I think everyone felt like they really knew him. And um, it was just, it was a perfect meshing for him, Maryland and the Preakness and horse racing. Just perfect. I remember when uh, deputed testimony won the Preakness, mm. and, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was a young kid at the time, and I was like, why is Jim McKay so excited about this one particular yeah. horse? <laughs> you <That's>, know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Billy and Joan uh, were were very, very good friends of mom and dad's. I mean, really very close friends. And Billy taught dad a lot about horse racing and and the horse industry in general. Uh, Dad knew a lot, but Billy really helped him understand even more so about it. And and dad loved going up to Bonita Farms, you know, and Mm, seeing the horses work out and and all of that. And uh, yeah, so he was as excited about deputed testimony as anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. You mentioned your brother a couple of times as well, and uh, mm-hmm. he actually has carried on your dad's tradition, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then some. Sean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Sean uh, is the chairman of CBS Sports. Right. Uh, he was the chairman of CBS News and Sports. Uh, but he really loved sports. And as you can imagine, news is a 24-7 thing. And he at the time had younger children and he just thought, I just don't want to do that anymore. Um, but he is, uh, I think the big way that he's carried on dad's tradition um, is that he is well-respected in the industry and, and across television. He is a man of his word. He has integrity. And uh, and he's also humble. He's not one of these grandiose guys either. And uh, in that way, he has definitely carried on uh, dad's legacy, if you will. And, mm. of course, he's behind the camera as opposed to being in front of it. Um, but, yeah, that uh, Sean is a, a really – he's a good guy. He's a really good guy. We're good friends. <laughs> well, I, I, that's good. And I think, actually, you know, just reflecting on it as we're talking about it here, when I think about – the Masters coverage or the NCAA mm-hmm. basketball tournament coverage um, and, mm-hmm. and, and football, too. There is a real storytelling quality, I think, yes. to what CBS Sports brings across. And, uh, and that's certainly, certainly Dad always felt that uh, the people 
were fascinating. Uh, and no matter what sport we were talking about, if you're talking about uh, log rolling or horse racing, it didn't matter. He was very interested in the people and telling their story. And Sean has brought that to CBS Sports, uh, definitely. And Jim Nance, of course, just yeah, yep. does that beautifully. He so, does. He um, does. Yeah. 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 And, so. and and let's just say the hiring of Tony Romo was brilliant because that guy predicts everything that's so. happening in every game. <laughs> I have actually texted Sean and I've said, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jim Nance is such a gracious gentleman that he, and, and confident in him himself, mm-hmm. that he could just let Tony go, let him, let him do his thing. And they had a, I thought, a wonderful relationship on air just terrific and uh yeah so hopefully that'll continue i mean watching them it seemed like they've been together for years you would never know, know. that this was like brand new to tony romo it's I unbelievable could, absolutely and as, oh. as i said i mean tony had a natural talent it seems mm-hmm. and obviously new football but jim really uh let him find his way and find his footing and uh, was very supportive of that and that's where jim is is such a gentleman and, and very much like my dad like your dad you yeah know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mary, you've actually brought me to tears a couple of times here. And oh. I, wasn't, I wasn't planning on that, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, oh, then I've done my job. No. <laughs> I really want to thank Cricket Goodall and Mary McManus Guba for joining us on this week's Can Do podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did. So, on we go to Baltimore for the second leg of the traveling equine circus we call the Triple Crown. We'll be uploading Chris Lombardi's Preakness handicapping thoughts later this week. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. And of course, May the horse be with you. Here in the telegraph, for a bear I'll bite. I hear his foot's all right. Of course, it all depends if it's red. Last night, I know it's not.